Welcome to the Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub podcast. AGS is a leading provider of agronomy services, exclusive products, and unrivaled customer support. Underpinned by a well-qualified and experienced team of former sports turf managers. AGS. Supply. Consult. Support. Hello and welcome to AGS Turf Hub podcast live. That's so good, wasn't it? That was decent, right. Brilliant, that's good. So we're all in then. Fantastic, we're in good form. Uh, we have a brief talk through now. So effectively, you're working in a world now where there's less fungicides. Uh, we need to be more environmentally friendly. We need to be more sustainable. Uh, and myself and Sam Honeybourne and Josh Thomason and Dan Squatch are going to talk you through what we're doing and how we operate and some options you might, you might have. We are looking at soil biology, uh, the benefits of organics. And basically, we're living in a world now where you've got sort of the net carbon usual by 2030, you've got various government initiatives, there's EFL initiatives, there's all sorts of things going on that you guys have to work with sort of moving forward. So if we can sort of educate a bit better into what you're doing, what you're looking after. If you don't understand the grass plant, you can't really look after a grass plant. So I'm going to start with the very, very basics. I'm going to take you back. Everyone has an origin story. So let's start with the, with the let's start at the beginning. So I think we said three billion years ago. It's a long time. Uh, and this is obviously a bit anecdotal and stuff, but Let's have a look. So the endosymbiotic theory. Now I don't want to get too heavy of you, and I'll do it all to switch off straight away. So the endosymbiotic theory, I will give you a very, very uh, basic overview. Once upon a time, there was two cells, and they lived happily apart in the sea. Uh, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere, so they were just bobbling along. And then one day, they thought life would be better if they, if they got together. So they got together, and when they got together for a symbiotic relationship, they then formed mitochondria, chloroplasts. Um, fast forward a little time. Once they became one nucleus, here we go, cell evolution. Um, once they became together and they, they, they became one nucleus, they had an organelle. Rather than an empty cell, there's a host cell and there's the, the, the membrane inside. That then gave them chlorophyll, which gave them the opportunity to then start photosynthesizing. So originally, you couldn't have life on Earth, then you could have life on Earth. Because when they could photosynthesize, they could release oxygen. So until you had oxygen, there was no life on Earth. So effectively now, you've got like an algae type. Obviously, there's no actual pictures of, of, of uh, two billion years ago. Impossible, couldn't find them, not even on Google. But this is effectively algae in a tidal pool. Photosynthesizing, creating oxygen. Whatever, well, look, picture of oxygen. For those that have never seen oxygen before, that's what it looks like. I think we're all big fans of it. Are we all big fans of oxygen? Yeah. Really, love it, that'll work. I'll stop doing that now because that'll be tedious, really tedious. So then there's life on Earth, and then you can have animals, and then you can have other trees, you can have shrubs and grasses. But it did take a long time for that to happen and the oxygen to build up. In the meantime, there were no roots. Luckily, around the same sort of time, there was mycorrhizae, and mycorrhizae were floating around in the sea. Uh, now, mycorrhizae are a fungal body who have like a hyphae-like structure, it's basically like, like, a, like a rooting structure, um, and they can access nutrients and minerals from the soil, and the algae can photosynthesize and create sugar, but they can't access the nutrients and they can't access the, um, the minerals. So they thought, right, let's get together then, and the mycorrhizae started working with the, with, the, with the plankton or the algae or the plankton, and in exchange for sugar, the mycorrhizae supply nutrient and minerals, in return for balanced nutrition. Oh, but uh, mycorrhizae. So mycorrhizae are fungi. We should, we should explain this. So these things are millions and millions of years old. Um, they formed a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship with grass plants and grass species on Earth. Um, and that 
organization still exists today. So all these years on, it's still working. Oh dear. Oh dear, I can see what's happened there. For the, for the benefit of the podcast, I'm looking at a lovely video, it's not going on the telly. Anyway, I'll stop that. Um, I'll stop that. Okay, so just imagine, right. Imagine, so my hands are roots. So you've got your plant, you've got your grass plant above the surface. Below you've got your roots. Mycorrhizae will come in and they'll, fill, they'll, they'll send out some high feed that goes into the root system and they can double, treble, they can, you know, a hundred times the mass of your roots. Your roots on your grass plant, that's where your grass takes up all its nutrients, it takes up its nutrition, it takes up its water. So if you can imagine you've got a grass plant with small roots, add some mycorrhizae and you've got lots of roots. You've got lots of roots and you've got lots of access to water, lots of access to nutrient. Uh, the upside of that is then your grass plant's healthier. The healthier the grass plant, the more sun it can get from photosynthesis, the more sugar it creates. So obviously, it's a self a self fulfilling um, cycle as such. So, root mass is good, and mycorrhizae helps root mass. Okay, so that's mycorrhizae. Uh, obviously, any questions actually at the end, ask me after in the break. Cause we're on a bit late, so uh, at the end of the day, ask questions, or in the break, ask me questions. That's sound. It's going to be on the pod, obviously. Um, in the notes, what I'll put in the notes is any good links to say, for example, this video didn't work, so you can watch it on there. Any links to research, any links to that, that, that are good from the talk, really, they'll all be in the podcast, so you can get on there. Uh, if anyone's collecting CPD points, it's basically accredited as well, so I'll put the CPD points and the link in the show notes when it when it lands. Assuming it all records fine, if not, I have to email you. Well, okay, moving on. Fast forward 450 million years, get the bear country, and suddenly we got roots. We got grass plants. That's lovely. Chris Fox not here today, actually, because his wife won't be giving birth. So unfortunately, Fox couldn't make it. But um, yeah, we've got some roots. And actually, what you'll find on this picture um, is a hybrid carbon system they got up at, at the training ground. But effectively, that is the roots, and that is a bit of the, the hybrid that's sort of falling down. But it's just to, so you can show that yeah, basically everything evolved, and one day they had roots. Photosynthesis. There you go. Okay, so obviously I'm a big Springsteen fan. You can't start a fire without spark. Okay. And what's our spark? The grass can capture sunlight. So the, the sun fires off photons of, of energy, the grass can catch that energy and turn it into sugar. Um, that is our spark. That is what we need for the process of photosynthesis. Um, off the back of that, obviously the rest of the plant can, it can feed itself, it can root, it can grow, uh, it can give off oxygen. A little picture of photosynthesis, no, but it was, yeah, sorry. Um, so obviously you've got sun, you've got light energy, water, carbon dioxide. So that's the three things you need for, for photosynthesis. Um, off the back of that, it creates sugar. Now what you'll find is it'll probably go between sugar and carbohydrate. It's basically the same thing. Now when you get in, if you really want to get into it, there's different types of sugar in the grass plant. But obviously I just want to touch the surface. So what I don't want to do is do a biology lesson or, or that sort of thing. So effectively, we just call it sugar. If you see carbohydrate, I mean sugar. It's just why I haven't changed it in my, in my program. So in order to grow, a plant has to have available its growing points a supply of sugar. As you can see, I then wrote brackets, carbohydrate. So I knew I'd do that. Um, so carbon, water, light energy. So let's have a look at the three things we have photosynthesis. Oh, the chloroplast. The chloroplast, that's what catches the photons of energy in the, in the grass plant. Now if you go back to that tidal pool, when we had two little nucleus that were separate and they come together, that is where the chloroplasts live. They live inside the mitochondria, inside the, inside the cell. So without that initial thing, you can have this. Water, water is part of the process, and that is split into the hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, the hydrogen, hydrogen combines with the carbon dioxide to form carbohydrate sugar. 
And this is used as chemical energy, which is ATP. So ATP is adenosine triphosphate. Um, now the thing about adenosine triphosphate is also you get it in a human. Obviously we get sunlight, sunlight gives us vitamin D, uh, and adenosine triphosphate, ATP, is the chemical reaction we've got on our bodies that I think it controls muscle mass effectively. Again, I'm not going to that level of, of biology, but it's funny, we've got grass with ATP, we've got humans with ATP. Uh, okay, and then oxygen comes out of the grass plant um, and it's diffused through the stomata. So it's a waste product. So oxygen is a waste product of the photosynth photosynthetic cycle. The chlorophyll is inside the chloroplast. Uh, light is absorbed by it, but it's also the green pigment. Uh, it's the colour in the grass in the grass that makes the green pigment. So if you've got a lot of chlorophyll and a lot of chlorophyll production, you've got a nice green plant. Um, I'll put on the bottom now. Chlorophyll contains magnesium. Obviously, you've done cow to get a green up. Well, the magnesium is in the chlorophyll, so you're making the chlorophyll in the plant go a bit greener uh, without using N, obviously. So it's kind of a back to cell evolution. We've got this barrier, but the result is a cell with a double membraned organelle. And that is where we find the chloroplasts. Water is part of photosynthesis. So, what's the chemical breakdown of water? It's two hydrogen and one oxygen. Yes, yeah, so water is uptaken through the root. And as it comes up through the root, you've got the transpiration process, you've got the respiration process. I'm not going to go into those today, but effectively, as grass sucks water up through the root, it goes through the glass, through the uh, through the leaf, through the blade, and it leaves through the stomata. So it's like the grass, the grass effectively is always sweating. Think of the stomata as being like your skin and your pores on your skin. You got that, but it's on the leaf of the plant. Uh, in hot weather, you're gonna sweat more. In cold weather, you sweat less. In which case, the transpiration cycle was taking less nutrient up through the plant. Um, also, the transpiration respiration process, obviously respiration is, is the grass breathing, but that also keeps the grass turgid, so if you want grass standing up, you need water flowing through to get the grass to stand up. I did see a stat on, uh, I'll say it was on Google, I saw it somewhere, where effectively I think 99% of the water in, in a grass plant is lost through the uh, transpiration, transpiration process. Lovely. So carbon dioxide is also in the photosynthetic process. Now the thing with carbon dioxide, Obviously, there's a massive agenda to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, carbon dioxide is one, one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. In the photosynthetic process, there's a thing called the Calvin cycle. Now, the Calvin cycle, then the grass plant you have got a thing called Rabisco. Rabisco contains five parts of carbon. To create a sugar, it needs six carbon and two hydrogen. So in this in this process, it takes the carbon, uh, it takes it from the CO2 it takes in. Um, it also takes the hydrogen from the water. So if you remember, the water was the two hydrogen oxygen, and the carbon dioxide is two carbon and one oxygen. So the carbon and the hydrogen is going into the photosynthetic process, and that is then creating a sugar. The oxygen they don't need it. Comes out of stomata, oxygenates the planet. So get in. We've got some oxygen. Um, as far as being on the green front goes and the sustainability front, between you now, you must have acres and acres and acres of grassland. Um, there's no real set figure of, of, of how much uh, oxygen or carbon you can sequester. And part of that is because every grass plant is different, every growing medium is different, every amount of sunlight is different. If you get a hot summer, the grass kind of shuts down. If you get a cold winter, the grass shuts down. So it's very hard to put a single figure. Uh, I can tell you now, hours of trawling the internet for some sort of figure, I came up with the conclusion that you can't, there's not a figure. There's still research to be done, but the main thing is, you're creating oxygen, and you're taking carbon from the atmosphere, 
and that's being lost it's turned it's being turned into a sugar so it's gone out of the atmosphere and it's turned to a sugar and the grass plant has used it to grow oh look there's a stomata there so effectively that's, that's a stomata um stomata plural stoma so if anyone asks you that it's a good quiz question in short photosynthesis just think solar panels uh, environmental effect, I've just mentioned it, so you're sequestering carbon. So you guys aren't, you're not just cutting grass, you're not out on a marrow, just cutting grass. You're taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So you're not just out of cutting grass, you're creating oxygen, the stuff we breathe. It's, it's deeper than that. Um, if you want grass plants to grow healthily, you need a healthy soil. You need microbes, you need drainage, you need aeration. Everything you do that's practical. You're not just managing grass, making it look pretty. What you're doing is getting the roots down. You're giving, um, you're improving biology. You're improving the air for the people around you. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I can, I, what I should have done is Googled all your places and then got a good idea of like, yeah, you've got a thousand hectares, but I didn't do that. And so lovely little infographic I pinched off on, online. I'd love to credit somebody for doing this, but um, I didn't know who did it. But effectively, grass is store carbon from the atmosphere in a healthy soil. And healthy soil, again, you're custodians of that. You're looking after the soil, you're keeping it healthy. Um, if you want to put a little fertilizer on that's really salty and, and, and um, synthetic, then obviously you're killing soil. If you want to spray fungicides, you're killing the microbes. So we're trying to think of a way forward that's more organic, um, less synthetics. Things where you're creating the microbes, you're increasing the biology, you're increasing the biodiversity. Because all that helps with the healthy soil. Uh, if you want to introduce uh, mycorrhizae, mycorrhizae is going to make that root structure even bigger. Um, and what you'll find in a healthy soil is all the protozoa and all the microbes in the soil can help sequester carbon. Healthy soils are key. So in summary, the wonders of grass. This is like a talk of two halves mind. So the first half is that bit, the second half is coming up. So, the ones of grass catches light, converts light into chemical energy. It was a miracle, really. Um, it just takes the light and it just turns a little grass plant, turns it into chemical energy. It creates oxygen, it sequesters carbon. It forms symbiotic relationships with fungal partners and it helps create a healthy soil. It also let Jeffers score a hat trick in 66. Get in. <laughs> but many grass species evolved in that period of time. So, part two of the talk. Uh, how much light does a grass plant need? Because that's what we want to know. So obviously it loves photosynthesis and that. We've done the original, the original story. So this is a paper that was produced by the USGA uh, in a magazine over there, the GCSWA magazine. And effectively what they've done, they've taken all the grass species and they've worked out their DLI requirements. So their daily light integral requirements. How much light those grass plants need to be at optimum, uh, an optimum level or acceptable level. Point your grass. Unfortunately, it's quite poor in the shade. Uh, it needs a DLI of around 30, and then you've got smooth meadow grass, and as you come down, you've got cream bent grass, uh, rough stalk, brown top. Uh, annual meadow grass, unfortunately, loves a bit of shade, which is fantastic for you guys who are trying to build annual meadow grass. But how does that equate, and what does that mean? So, that is a set of figures that's been published, so it's decent research. If you take their chart and put some figures to it, then perennial grass needs roughly about 29. Now, this is approximations, approximations, and this is on which has been published. Published. The MOL meter squared a day is moles per meter squared per day of, of um, PAR, which is, which is radiation from the sun. Right, so PAR. PAR is photosynthetically active radiation. So it measures that, but daylight integral. How do you measure that? How can we get on board with knowing how much sunlight you've had? You've had? Um, there's a really good podcast actually off the, off, I think it's linked to that previous article and I'll put that again in the show notes underneath that you can listen to we'll go into more detail daylight integral uh, it measures the PAR radiation from the sun 
The good news is there's a website, it does it for you. So if you go on a website, and it is called the Global DLI app on the Asian Turf Brass website. You can go on that website and you can type in your address or your place or your location, and it will give you the previous year, I'm thinking backdated quite a few years, of how much daylight you've had in your area. Um, it will give you the standard, and what I've done is I've gone into it, and I have got this. And basically I've done the Bristol one for the last year. So, what you can see on this, this chart is the green, is Bristol's DLI from last year. Orange is Bristol's average. And the black lines I've put in are at the top, perennial rye grass and cream bent grass. And down here is brown top bent grass. So just so you can get an idea, I mean, obviously cream bent and brown top you'd use more in golf. Uh, rye grass, obviously, we're, we're majoring on in winter sports and, and football and rugby. Um, what you can see here, if you take uh, perennial rye grass, September, so sort of coming up to September, the daylight in Temple of Bristol had dropped below the, the the average the average required to produce a good surface. It didn't get there until um, maybe April, March, April. So you're growing good grass with not enough daylight from April in Bristol through so just before September. If you were doing cream bent grass, it's got the same sort of it follows the same line. So cream bent grass, same sort of thing. Brown top bent grass. Put happy will grow until mid-September and it starts kicking in in March. But by knowing your DLI, then you can work out what grass species you've got and how it all affects your, your light. You'll know, for example, the Evans is in from um, Principality. Terrible shade. Um, if you want to know about it, Lee did a podcast. It's on there. Go and find it. But terrible shade. There's no light from sort of like September through to June. Oh, that's a dirty pun. That's my phone. Hang on. <laughs> Unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, I won't answer that. Sorry, Mum. Yeah, so, yeah, terrible light. So, if you, if you know what you like, the products are, for those of you who've got light and rigs or, or, or you know, the opportunity to add light, then you can. But I'll put links to this again in the show notes so you can find it and have a little, little play around. It's interesting to know what you're trying to grow, how much light you need. Now, what I would say is it's approximation and it's off USA data, so obviously we're in the UK and through the winter, probably it needs a little less. But yeah, it's just something we have to play with. It's worth working into that as well, natural soil growth rate. So obviously if it's too hot and it's too cold, grass don't want to grow. So grass likes to grow in the spring as it warms up. In theory, if we had a hot summer, grass wants to go dormant. It sends those roots up and it doesn't want to put any top growth on. It wants to hold on to all nutrient, all moisture, and get through the summer. In the autumn, as it cools down slightly and we get nice temperatures again, it starts to grow, and then through the winter it's dormant. Obviously, you guys are managing turf now all year round. It's a 12-month process. Uh, for those that are doing growings on football pitches, you're trying to grow the grass in, probably, around that bit there, where the grass don't want to grow. And most of your fixtures probably come through November through to March, when, again, ryegrass ain't really growing. For the golf boys, you've got the same thing in your tees. So, yeah, so you're working within that. So you've got your, D your DLI dropping, your natural soil growth rates are all over the shop, um, and obviously, as the light as the light goes down, and there's less light as a, in general, you've then got um, low temperature germination. What can you do to try and get some coverage back? What could you grow? Um, obviously, touch boys have been pushed quite a lot for cold tolerance. Uh, this is a slide I actually stole from. Uh, we went to Holland recently to, to Baron Brooks Trials. This guy there called Olaf. Um, he's our head of breeding. I didn't ask him if he liked warm hugs because because his talk was so good. I had to nick it. And what you've got here, for those who can't see, there's a, a yellow line at the bottom. That's annual ryegrass, and that's germinating around three and a half degrees. The red line is poanya and plenty ryegrass, and that is around five and a half degrees. 
and then you've got um, Brown Top, Grosses uh, uh, and Fescue, you're up around, I think that's 10 degrees. But point being, as the temps get colder, and I'm sure if I had more time, I could have got you a chart that said Bristol, but that's actually for Sweden, right? And it does get quite cold for the winter. But what you can do is elongate your seeding programme, or if you're, if you're renovating and you're trying to get some grass growth back, put a grass in that's going to grow in the temperatures. If it's too cold, it ain't going to grow. It's certainly not going to establish. Here are some UK, uh, this is some cold temperature tests that have been done, again, via Baron Brooks, they've got their data, and they just banged um, 14 days in a tank at five degrees, all the grasses to see how, how they got on. And what you can see, by some freak, Bar Olympic, which is just a standard diploid plain ryegrass, had 86% germination. Um, the two annual ryegrasses are 71% and 68.3%. The interesting information on there is there was a couple of tetraploids, and as you can see, the tetraploids grew 25% and 33%. So if anyone's trying to flog your tax points for winter overseeding, well, they're better than nothing, um, but there's better options out there, let's just say that. And it's worth bearing in mind as well, tax points and diploids are comparable. So if you're going to compare the two, then uh, at the bottom here you've got the, the, the tetraploids, and at the top here you've got the, the diploids. But if you've got a recovery rate of the very, very best tetraploid at 6.6, .6, and you've got a recovery rate of um, best wild grass at 7.4, well, it recovers better. Why would you sow a grass, if you're trying to be more sustainable, grow a grass that's got better recovery? The other thing with that, with, whilst I'm having a go at the tetraploids, it's worth bearing in mind that the tetraploids, um, they grow like stink. That's an official term, grow like stink. Uh, this slide here shows um, diploid ryegrasses and the slopes around diploid ryegrasses right down the bottom. Just so you know, the tetraploids put on twice as much leaf mass. And that was managing, that was um, taking daily, daily live weight gain and weighing the growth. But on sustainability angle, if you're growing tetraploid, you're it twice as fast. Now, speed of establishment, here's some trial data from the SGRI. So again, we're getting back to British information. Um, and these, these figures here were taken from the 2015 BSPB, BSPB list, the next SGRI. From sowing through September, the live ground cover scores for all diploid, uh, for the average for diploids was 6.1. The average for tetraploids was 4.6. So if you imagine you put a touch point in the ground, it will grow like stink, get really long, put on loads of growth, but not put on any live ground cover. If you don't put any ground cover, you're going to get problems with weeds, weed ingression. You're going to get problems with moss. And then if you do establish, you don't recover. So by the time you do get going, they'll kick out. But yeah, if, if everyone tries to sow tetraploids, I'll be, yeah, ask them, say, well, why would I do a tetraploid over a diploid uh, in the cold weather? Why would I do it against an annual? Right, take a message. We got there, we got to the end, that was good wasn't it? So you can't start a fire without a spark, what was our spark? Catching sunlight. And i tell you what, you can't grow grass if you're dancing in the dark. <laughs> Very good boys, thank you for listening, that's me done. And uh, Gaffer, Sam, then now, so Sam, Sam will take you through soil biology. Obviously as I said, any questions, ask me after. Okay, thanks Joe. Great presentation, brilliant. I am Bristolian as well as Joe, but I'm very different in terms of how I speak. Just, just, just for the record, now you'll notice that. Any Bristol Rovers fans in here? Just a show of hands if you got one, two. Okay, welcome to Bristol Sport. Look at the look, look at the quality of this place, guys. Enjoy it, all right. So, just uh, as a Bristol City fan, I had to get there nice and early. Um, so, I'm doing the value of true organic fertilizer. Joe's asked me to sort of. Well, tag on to his presentation, really, he sort of set the foundation for me to talk about MPKs, sustain, organic fertilizers. A lot of you are aware of that already. So, the agenda I'm going to start with the basics of fertilizer, 
Um, widely used terminology, what do they mean? So we hear pH, CEC, humic acid. What the hell do these things mean? No one knows. These reps just turn up and say, put this humic acid down, yeah, put that down. What does it actually mean? Let's go through that. Defining organics. Our offering is sustain, but there are other organics in the marketplace, but I'll explain to you why we think sustain has the right data set, the, the right basis to actually be the right product for you going forward. Um, the value of composted organics in sports. So, so specifically looking at sand profiles, you guys are dealing with largely inert profiles. So how can we buffer that and improve nutrient uptake? Soil microbes, I'll cover that off broadly um, and we'll do the sustained sports turf range at the end. Let's take it right back to the very beginning, back to school. NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and for a curveball, potassium. Um, this, this little slide here just says nitrogen, it greens up the plant. Phosphorus, I'm reading it out because I can see the front guys putting their glasses on. Um, reaches for the roots, so nitrogen goes up, phosphorus goes down, and potassium looks after the overall plant. Well, I think we can do a little bit better than that. Nitrogen is for cell division and shoot growth. So looking at biological, it's of zero is six degrees and up. That's when you're gonna get your plant to grow on, and that's gonna give you a surface establishment. Phosphorus transfers energy into the root system. Also, if you've got too much phosphorus, you're gonna encourage poa annua, because it's a seeding element from, the, from what it says there, which is the blooming. Um, temperature and water regulation really is what potassium is about. It's been missold, misrepresented, misconstrued in the industry for years because people think potassium, I've got to put it down one to three, one to four ratio in the autumn winter to harden the cell plant, harden the cell, uh, cell wall rather, harden the plant off to, uh, to protect me from disease. That's incorrect. It's used for water and temperature regulation in the summer months. Really important that when you're really up against it in the summer, potassium is your key element. So, by law, what is a fertilizer? I'm gonna read it out, guys, because you can't see everything. So a fertilizer is any organic or inorganic material of natural or synthetic origin, other than liming materials, that is added to a soil to supply one or more plant nutrients essential to the growth of plants. That's a legal classification. So you might have heard a bit about biostimulants recently and chemicals. There's new, there's new groups in place in the EU, fertilizer, biostimulants, and chemicals. So that's quite important. They sit in three distinct categories. Inorganic, so your conventional, water-soluble, salt-based fertilizers, and we all sell them. We've got them in our range too. Um, organic, animal or plant-derived. We're gonna focus on animal, but there's, there's plant options available too. And then liquid um, is a combination of the, the two previous categories in a liquid form. So you can spoon feed, you can close a window on application. There's 17 elements required for photosynthesis. So for that plant to grow, it needs 17 elements. Not three, not old school NPK, three. It needs 17. So we all focus on what we call the primary nutrients, the macronutrients, and there's nine nutrients required by plants in a macro, larger state, at a thousand parts per million or more. Micronutrients, eight nutrients required by plants at less than a thousand parts per million. So just a takeaway thing there, macro is your primary nutrients, micro is your trace elements. So often, so the guys that are perhaps running school pictures and things like that, you don't need to look at micronutrients. In indigenous soils, there will be sufficient amounts of micronutrients. Um, Mother Nature is very good to us because the three of the key macro, major prime nutrients, are carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. And that's supplied by water, soil and air. So if we keep going with our cultural regimes and keep oxygenating those profiles, we're going to tap into three major elements. Only composted organics supply all 17 elements in slow-release form. That's a takeaway point. That's really important. 
only composted organic, not sterilized organics, not organic, composted organics will give you all 17 elements for slow release. They sit in <coughs> four elemental groups, atmospheric, primary being your large, macro, secondary, micro, and then of course your, your real micronutrient list. I've just circled some key ones there. Carbon, Joe touched on it, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for carbon, uh, wouldn't be here if it wasn't for oxygen, plants are no different to us. We have to give that plant carbon. In the secondary category, sulphur. Sometimes people get jumpy about applying lots of sulphur. Sulphur is required for nitrogen assimilation. So you have to have a small amount of sulphur in that profile. I know we think black layer, high iron levels, high sulphur, anaerobic conditions. No, it's required, but just in micro trace amounts. Iron, we kind of bastardize iron in the, in, the, in the turf market because iron is necessary just from, from a micronutrient perspective. We use it in chelated form and ferrosulfate form for rapid green up and acidification. It's a very useful, useful element, but when coupled with sulfur, we have to be careful we don't generate black layer in the profile. As um, organic nitrogen is a slow release fertilizer, I thought I'd put in some other examples of slow release nutrient. We have polymer coated urea, so that's resin coated, uh, osmocote type technology, so Sierra Blend, Multivine, that sort of thing, polyon, and that's resin coated. It through, works through osmosis, the guys that paid attention in the school, that pulls in moisture for the first four or five days of application and it releases over, over a temperature release phase. Six degrees is biological zero, that's when that product starts to release. We can get, I say can, get up to six months longevity on some of your sand pitches. We're not going to get anywhere near that with Dan. We talk about a lot of Dan, don't we? Um, but yeah, on the indigenous soil, heavy materials, they will last. Sulfur-coated urea, um, that is simply a, a cheaper alternative and it's just a layer of sulfur around urea and that breaks down through weathering and microbial activity. Note microbial activity. So even though they're synthetics, they need soil microbes to be mineralized and taken up by the plant. Methylene urea is a manufactured urea. Oh, getting ahead. Soil microbes convert nitrogen to plant available available form over time. So, again, microbes take that urea and then turn it into a nitrate ready for plant uptake. And the Rolls Royce of the job, organic nitrogen fertilizer. So soil microbes convert organic nitrogen over a prolonged period of time. So you build humus fraction in your profile, you're gonna buffer your sand, and everything you apply to that surface, be it synthetic, be it liquid, be it whatever, will improve in terms of its uptake. Commonly used terms, um, pH, what does it mean? Oh yeah, it's low pH, it's acidic. Okay, it is potential of hydrogen. So hydrogen is an acid. So the more hydrogen ions present in the profile, the lower the pH of the soil. I think the key thing here is ammonium sulfate converts to nitrate in the soil, releasing hydrogen. We all, everyone uses ammonium sulfate. We sell ammonium sulfate, it's the most popular source of synthetic nitrogen. Every time we put ammonium sulfate down, we release hydrogen ions into the soil profile. So therefore we get an acidification, we get an acid soil, and we'll come on to the, the negatives around that in a minute. Um, if you see the pH there, the guys at the back sat at seven, all your primary nutrients are more than happy. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, magnesium, more than comfortable. Dropping down to four, four and a half, complete lockup. Complete lockup of these nutrients. And that's another term there, used extensively. Nutrient lockup can happen when the pH levels of the soil, water or nutrients are too extreme or unstable for the plant. This is one of Joe's customers, I've blocked out who it is, no one in this room, I might add. That's a pH of 4.5, that profile was shut down. That plant's not taking any nutrient up at all, 
It's thatch accumulation, leaf litter going into the top. That is going to be a pretty horrendous situation. But yeah, really, really important, that potential of hydrogen. That's what pH means. Um, other commonly used terms, CC. What the hell does that mean? Cation exchange capacity. Okay, so cation exchange capacity affects the soil's ability to hold on to essential nutrients. So nice and simple, if you've got a sand-based profile, you are going to have a low CEC, it's a low organic matter fraction, and your nutrient falls away. I mean, that's bog standard, everyone knows that I fully appreciate. From a scientific perspective, you've got a um, negative charge clay humus particle there, and you've got positive um, cations attracted elements to that particle being pushed up to the root surface. If we've got more of a sand-dominated profile, it would pay us to use a humus-type product to basically pick up that nutrient, pick up that water and keep it at the root surface. Soils with a high CEC are more stable because they retain more cations, such as calcium, magnesium and potassium that help bind soil particles together. So not only are they feeding the plant, they keep the aggregate of the soil intact. Again, a really important part, so you don't get compaction so much, you get better rooting. We need to maintain a humus fraction in the top 100 mil for, for plant support. So, just think about your grow medium, think where your rooting is now. That is really important. If we can get those roots down to 75, 100 mil, there's a lot of pressure on the top, I appreciate. But with these products, we probably can get somewhere half close to it. Cation, anion. Anyone who's done college, been to college and done, done the turf side of things will know that to remember that a cation is a positive charge, cat P, that's a cat on the loop. Cat P, so easy enough. Um, and the difference is on the cation that Cations got more protons than electrons, and anions got more electrons than protons. We haven't got to remember that really, but I think it's important that we understand that a soil particle is ne negatively charged, and uh, on, the, on the exchange side, the different elements battle away. Calcium can be a dominant one, for example, and they battle away to try and get uptake on the root system. So potassium, as an example, is highly mobile. So you've got a sand profile, you need potassium in the summer months for drought and temperature control, but actually it's dropping out the bottom all the time, so you're up against it. So under, a basic understanding of what's happening. Um, here in the lower pH, hydrogen ions are knocking those off, they're displacing the other elements, they're being dominant on that soil particle. Quite important. Again, commonly used terms, humates, humic acid. Oh, mine's got 10% humic acid, oh, mine's got 5% humic acid. What the hell does it mean? So humus is the substance that is left over after plants and animals have undergone a long process of decomposition. So in a normal world, in a normal tree outside, we've got humus in the top, what they call horizon A, top soil is horizon B, subsoil horizon C, D and E. This is your parent rock. So if you, if you live where I live, you've got basic chalk. You've got chalk and it's calcified, obviously, and you go up through the system. This is a standard humus topsoil subsoil structure. Um, so yeah, composted organics have already been through the humification process key because people are saying I oh, don't use sustain or don't use that organic because you're going to put thatch you're going to create thatch it's incorrect it's already been through a 26 week process of humification so you're putting down a live product which will bolster that profile independent research shows an oh, independent research shows an increase in rooting particularly at the seedling stage to aid establishment of a new surface Humates have a large surface area to ma massively increase CEC. That's true. Humates are protein builders. They've got a massive surface area. So it sits next to the root and it keeps pushing nutrient up all the time. This isn't such a common um, term, but I was chatting to Dan about it the other week. 
luxury consumption. Sounds quite good, doesn't it? Luxury consumption. When me and Pete go out for a beer, we do a lot of luxury consumption, which basically means we drink far too much and we get fat, we get headachy, and it's all a bit shit. Well, grass plant will do exactly the same thing. It has a tendency of certain grass species to absorb too much nutrient. Luxury consumption, give that some serious thought because we put out our 10 4 4s every two weeks and thinking, yeah, let's just load that plant. Dan, because of that conversation, Dan and I were talking about it, he basically had a flaccid leaf. So, um, not Dan personally, he had, a, he, had a, he, had a, he had a flaccid leaf where it was a perfect storm, wasn't it, Dan? The temperature was right, it was a load of moisture was around, we put 10 4 4 down, which is all available nitrogen, and the plant just went and just sucked it up. Potassium and nitrogen are the main elements which are prone to luxury consumption. Really important. So just, it creates soft growth and increases disease potential. Just regulate that synthetic nitrogen. Buffer it with organics, regulate the synthetic nitrogen. It's a nice picture of Pete, isn't it? Well, I had one of you with your top off, but I thought that'd be inappropriate. And that's a bit weird that I've got that as well. Um, I like this slide, um, luxury consumption, reservoir of synthetic nitrogen. So you put a lot of nitrogen on the surface, we're creating a reservoir of nitrogen, the plant just says, well, why am I gonna put my feet down? Why am I gonna put my roots down? There's no point. I can go left and right. It's what you call bridging or lateral growth. At 20 mil control, you can see a definitive root structure. Phosphate, obviously, phosphate will make the roots go down. Look at nitrate and ammonia. Pretty much nothing after 20 mil. So you look at your synthetics, you're putting down, and we sell them as well, so I'm not, not, not sort of saying anything different. I'm just making the point that we need to be mindful of what we're doing with those products. Potassium, obviously, is an all-round regulator of nutrient, but nitrate and ammonium, zero rooting structure. But has its place. I'm not knocking it, I'm just saying use alternative products alongside it. Okay, the timeline of organic fertilizer. Uh, 2500 BC, the Amazonians worked out if they went to the loo, left their dead people, and left their food residue and chucked a few fish carcasses in a corner, all of a sudden that was starting to grow like stink. That is the original organic fertilizer. It's called Terra Preta, which is black soil in Portuguese. Fast forward to the 1800s, you've got bone sulfate there, um, or bone phosphate rather, which is bone meal, and that has analysis of 3, 15, 10, to 12% calcium. So they clocked it, they could use, you know, bone marrow, basically break it down, plants would grow. I'm not sure I put that bloke in the middle. Um, a little nod to my Welsh colleagues, um, sheep poo, five pound a bag, 1960s. Um, my old man used to put sheep poo in my mum's uh, tights, not when she was wearing them, after that, <laughs> tied them up and dropped them into a water bath. Used to go and feed all the roses and stuff. That's the original uh, organic fertiliser. And current day, we've all been stuck behind those top muck spreader. I thought this was quite a nice slide. Um, simply put, synthetic fertiliser will feed the plant, which is required. We all need that to keep that plant tillering out, and thickening up. But organic fertilizer does so much more. Organic matter, soil nutrients, microorganisms, then back up to the plant for plant nutrients. Types of fertilizer characteristics. So, again, in the marketplace we get, oh, this is an organic fertilizer, it's 18% nitrogen. Okay. You certainly get um, uh, ammonium sulfate mixed with organics. So you get mineral organics and they're available and sustain do them as well. But if someone comes into you and says, we've got an all organic, 100% organic product, it cannot exceed 6% nitrogen. That's it. It's not me saying that, that is just the way it is. So 
If it's from a manure, it's 0.1 to 5% nitrogen. If it's a compost, 0.1 to 4%. Fish meals, hydrosate being commonly used now, 2 to 5% nitrogen. Soya bean meal, up to 6% nitrogen. So a takeaway point on that, can't exceed 6% nitrogen. We also do natural base fertilizers. So we blend the composted organic base with uh, a synthetic material. So you get the benefits in the profile and you also get a surface feed, which is essentially what we're all looking for. The key thing for sustain, as an example here, is it's still 65% organic. So you've still got a, a higher fraction of organic material. We're also getting a little benefit of synthetic as well. That's in the case of 10-2-10. Slightly controversial, and I've marked it so you can't tell which product it is, but this is an organic in the marketplace. Marked it as an organic. It's 12.5% organic. It's sterilised. And it's got no CFU, we've not come onto that yet, but CFU is colony forming units. If the product has been um, composted correctly, it will have live bacteria and fungi. That is it, and that's what we're after. That product hasn't, it's 87.5% ammonium sulfate. That is a synthetic fertilizer. When that's used on golf greens, um, and Pete will vouch for that, I think, in our, in our past, that just feeds on the existing stand. So if you're overseas, you spend a lot of money on Ben and you're looking to recover that green, you are just bringing the power back if you use a product which has got 87.5% ammonium sulfate. Simple as that. A true organic will not give you rapid recovery, as marketed. It doesn't happen. Rapid recovery comes from water-soluble nitrogen, not water-insoluble nitrogen. So the benefits of composted organics, they improve soil structure, so better plant uh, root development, they increase hydraulic conductivity, they don't impede it. That's been suggested, I've got some data. There's a sheet down there actually that says that sustain does not impede drainage, it does not change your hydraulic, hydraulic conductivity. Um, it improves cation exchange capacity. Going back to that previous chart, it pushes up nutrients to the root surface. It supplies humus and organic matter, enables soil to hold onto nutrients for longer. So stretch that application out. If it says it's a four to six week product on the bag, but you're only getting two weeks, Buffer that profile so you get the best out of that synthetic when you apply because you need to, but just make sure you can get the, the length of time that you should. Reduces disease incidence. That is correct. Uh, 524 in trials um, against anthracnose was on a par with Banamax, propoconazole, a fungicide. So, taking the view that the fungicide was applied when anthracnose came into the stand, we used sustain to feed it through. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty big. Um, and the biggest thing for you football boys is supports the establishment of seedlings, vital in short window renovations. Dan's windows are getting tighter and tighter, so it's imperative that we get those seedlings anchored down, ready to go. So, within sustain, we've got increased microbial diversity. So, again, the sand profile is largely inert. We're battling with that all, all day long with low pH, what we talked about. So, let's just build that organic fraction the best we can. Compost organics are alive, I've touched on that. One teaspoon has 100 million to 1 billion of living microbes. If you create the right environment for those microbes, they will flourish. Um, these organisms make nutrients available to the plant and they also exchange signals with the plant actually when there's disease pressure or, or, or weather pressure. Feed information and develop the root system. Yeah. So in sports turf, these populations are imperative to balance sound dominated profiles. I thought this is quite a good slide. Um, 
This is a trial where sustain was incorporated in at construction. So quite simply, difference in turf densities three years after establishment and following identical turf management regimes on plots. So 3% four six four built into that profile onto the grow medium. That was just sand and peat only, and then it was a, a normal fertilizer regime was applied after that. Look at the difference in, in composition. Clear difference. Sustain. So sustain has been imported into this country since 1980. It's from the Holden family, um, and the story goes there's two brothers, one got the turkeys and the other got the ship, and he had to work out a way of making money from the ship. That's basically the story. So all those turkeys, they mess onto pine bedding. Now pine bedding is imperative because it's carbon. We're trying to get that carbon source. The muck goes onto the carbon, and we take it out into windrows, like so and we turn it over a 26 week period, okay? And it goes through these different phases. So raw organic matter, it goes up the temperature scale, uh, mesophilic, thermophilic, which are just different heat ranges which take out um, salmonella and uh, dangerous fungi and bacteria. And it cools down to a stabilization and curing phase where we're actually left with stable humus. And that's what we're after, humus. If you put down a non-composted product into your profile, the microbes have to convert that to humus. So they suck out oxygen in the profile, things slow down, they don't de degrade thatch, they just break that fertilizer down. So you can bypass that by applying a composted organic. So aerobic means oxygen-loving microbes, thermophilic, heat-loving microbes. It removes unwanted pathogens. As I said, it's a 26-week cycle. And within that process, you get a natural humic and phobic substance that comes with sustain. So it's not added like every other fertilizer out there, it's part of the build. Reading and understanding labels. Um, we, we, well, we pride ourselves on having labels. You can see every single product, every single element. Um, you can't really see at the back right? but anyway, from a sustained perspective, it lists every single nutrient. It lists the different primary food sources. It's the government regulations. It's got the percentage of slow-release nitrogen. It's got everything you could ever want on that label, and you can search for more information if you need it. We compete in a market where it's unregulated, and Joe and I could set a business up tomorrow and have a 464 and call it whatever we want. We can sell it. So, really contentious. I'm sorry if I'm going to get shot for this one. This is a competing product. It's a 624. It's an organic on the bag. It says earth safe, whatever that means. It says hardy natural growth. You don't get hardy natural growth from an organic. No thatch buildup. Again, the loosest of loose terms. Less disease based on what? Eco-friendly. No organic. It's a synthetic nitrogen. All of it. Ammoniacal, nitrate, urea. There's no organic fertilizer in that product. With traceable levels of magnesium, manganese, no percentages of trace elements. pH is slightly acidic to neutral. What does that mean? We don't know. Contains humates. How many? What? So we pride ourselves on labels. If you entrust us with sustain and, and using that product, you'll see that actually we can give you all the information. I'm not going to dwell on this, um, but microbial diversity and sustain lists all the fungi and bacteria within that. It lists the complete CFU. The SRDI is Species, species Richness Diversity Index, and sustains composted material is that of a soil system, an active soil system. So if you were to dig a bit of soil out of a, a woodland, 
it'll be the same at 4.5 as a, as a composted sustained product. Beneficial nematodes are present, um, maintaining balance in the profile. We've had some great results uh, when plant parasitic nematodes were in situ and using sustain. I'll come on to the data of that in a minute. Soil microbes, um, the key points, how can we manage them? Um, if we use chemical fertilizers, I think Joe touched on this, over time we'll deplete natural microbial populations. Obviously, synthetic fertilizer is extremely effective in short-term nutrient delivery, and that's required, but quite a bit is lost to mobility in low CEC systems, so nitrate, potassium. They also acidify our soil profile. So fully accepting they're required, but let's just try and make the very best of them. Microbial inputs, Joe talked about mycorrhizal fungi. Um, I think all of us think we better put it down and we hear about compost teas and different things and they have their place, but if we don't create the right environment for these things, you're wasting your money. Um, microbes can't survive in acidic anaerobic conditions. Biostimulants are added there that a lot of people are using biostimulants now, fantastic tools in the armory, they are a food source for microbes. So what limits the life of our soil? Soil composition, high sand fraction, pH, if it's native or creative, we need to just adjust it to a more neutral position. Compaction, stores of fresh soil carbon. Temperature, seasonality, salt and other chemicals, water and oxygen availability. We can create the right environment by using a sound cultural program and compost organics with soil conditions throughout the year. Perhaps try and see some of these organics as soil conditions, not surface feeders, as fertilizers. I thought I'd just do a synthetic versus organic comparison. So a standard 8128, um, used extensively, uh, ammonite nitrogen, 8%, all water soluble, no organic nitrogen, as acidifying, 12% phosphorus, 8% potassium magnesium, no listed pH. If you were to use 464 as an example, you're getting 3.2% water insoluble nitrogen derived from compost. You're getting 0.8% well, of water soluble nitrogen, but it's real emphasis on the slow release. And you've got a comprehensive range of phosphorus, potassium, calcium, humic acid 10%, organic matter at 50%, and a complete trace element package, 70 elements, four photosynthesis, which you know that seedling requires. So it's night and day. I think a few of you are thinking, what's going on with this clicker? Think of you, some of you are thinking, why worry? We renovate every year and start again. Why worry? We just take the top off, we core it off. You all face significant challenges through the season due to the high sand fraction. I think that's fair. Um, low pH, black layer, poor nutrient retention, uptake disease. Um, improved overall function of the growing medium by incorporating composted organics. So on your table is a little bit of a takeaway. What if? Um, sustain doesn't impede drainage. <coughs> it was it was widely suggested that it does. Um, I'm not going to dwell on it. Have a look at your literature there. Uh, no effect on saturated hydraulic conductivity. Sustained particles are basically the same size as a sand fraction. So therefore, it's not going to change it. And even in heavy use, monthly sustain added far less than the organic matter produced by turf grass in the same period. So. It doesn't impede drainage. Just very quickly, there's a, there's a sheet on this as well. Um, there was a study in 2017 in Southampton where they had a major problem with PPM, plant parasitic nematodes. Um, just a snapshot, over the period of six months, there was a 90% reduction in PPM. And that was made mainly because, and this is all from Kate, um, we, are, we are balancing that profile with beneficial microorganisms. So, nematodes and protozoa that will compete with those plant parasitic.
the nematode damage index reduced to, reduced to negligible and manageable levels. So please see the new sustain guide where we've got that information in there. Um, with a joke time, all right? Or? No worries. Um, in terms of the sustain range, I've, all right, I've touched on 464. That is your, your sort of high end pre seeder whenever you're doing renovation work. Um, we've also got 1539, which I know Foxy uses up at the top, um, which he likes a lot, which is a composted base. It's also got UMAX, which is coated urea, so it gives you that synthetic release on the surface as well. 5% humic acid up to 12 weeks, perfect if you're on indigenous soils too. Regen, soil amendment is something newish to the range, so if you've been using zeolite or Leo Zeo as a soil amendment to try and boost CC, we've got an alternative with Sustain, which has got the composted base. It's also got humic acid, uh, mycorrhizae, seaweed, the whole lot, the whole shooting match, that's, that's probably a conversation for another day. So, the takeaway points really for me is organic soil conditions complement the use of synthetics. Don't replace them, they complement them. They extend the longevity of your applications. You can reduce nitrogen input if you manage the, the soil profile in a correct fashion. They maintain buffer, another phrase, pH to ensure nutrients remain unlocked and utilized. You can boost CC without impeding hydraulic conductivity. You can reduce the incidence of plant parasitic nematodes, and from an overall perspective, you can tick a big sustainability box at your site um, because there is going to be, you know, a bit more emphasis around nitrate levels as farmers are seeing at the moment. Not to name drop at all, we've got a few people that use sustain and they're quite happy with it. So give them a ring, Foxy, um, our friend at Twickenham, Mr. Kinley, um, Scott of Watford, um, to name but a few. So we've got literature all on the side. Um, and obviously any desk there, so anything else required, speak to Joe, myself, later on. Thank you very much. Everyone good? Um, I'm Joshua Thomason, Technical Manager for AGS. I am Northern, so I'm not from down here, so if you can't understand me, I'm really sorry. So I'm going to talk today about the rise of non-fungicidal solutions. There are different things on the market currently um, that we can initiate a response in the plant towards de uh, disease defence. Um, we'll touch on uh, integrated disease management as well, more of, a, more of a holistic way of managing your turf grass as opposed to just reaching to that uh, fungicide or insecticide. Um, we'll, we'll actually look at the non-fungicide of solutions, we'll look at some strategies as well touch on grey leaf spot, more for the football environment. Um, I'm based up in London and pretty much all the guys in London are getting grey leaf spot year round now. Um, so we'll touch on that and then we'll touch on grass cultivar selection towards grey leaf spot tolerance as well. So most of you might have seen a pyramid like this for IPM. Essentially, right at the top is that chemical that you're gonna reach for. That fungicide where you've got a disease and you need to, to, to basically knock it and get some sort of response in the turf. Unfortunately, uh, well unfortunately and fortunately, um, chemical legislation is coming in um, within Europe and within the UK where there will be a reduction in fungicides. <clears throat> so essentially if we can start with, the good, with, with good agronomic practices um, and that is essentially doing what you do best have correct air, shade and light, 
Um, managing the water volumes as well, it's definitely in the football situation. Um, and keeping the leaf moisture off the leaf. Going one step up from that is making um, decisions and monitoring that playing surface. You guys work there day in, day out. You see what that playing surface is going through, the stresses, the strains throughout the year. There are different monitoring forecasting systems out there now where you can predict a grey leaf spot, you can predict dollar spot, you can predict your weather coming in. So you can make better judgment calls as opposed to 10 years ago or even five years ago where you're pretty much sticking your finger out and going, it's going to rain today or this. There's a bit of temperature coming, I'm going to put out a fungicide. The forecasting systems are there now really to make your practices really more precise. And then going that one step up from that is the mechanical uh, and physical and natural controls. So you're doing your aeration, using your lighting rigs, um, adjusting your moisture temperatures if you can. And then what we're going to talk about predominantly today is the biological controls. Essentially, there's a few chemicals on the market that will initiate a hormone response within the plant to initiate the priming of that plant to tell it that there is disease coming. So if you do it in a preventative manner, you can use those sort of products to pre-warn the plant to tell that it's disease coming. So when you, you've got disease, you're not reaching for that fungicide straight away. So you'll have your biotic and abiotic stresses. Uh, most of us will know what most of them are. Um, so your biotic are the bacteria, fungi, the viruses within, <coughs> within the soil profile, uh, and that being nematodes and insects as well, especially in the football environment. So you've got biotic and abiotic here at the top. So with the abiotic, you've got nutrient imbalances, uh, compaction, mechanical, drought, stress, temperature. What we want to do is try and move away from fungicidal applications and use things, for instance, the non-fungicidal treatments like biostimulants, you can use forms of plant nutrition uh, and also plant elicitors. A plant elicitor is what we talked about again, is that sort of chemical compound that is going to initiate a response in that plant. Moving on to what we can do in the soil, we can add the beneficial bacteria uh, and the beneficial fungi. Um, Sam talked about sustain, we also have a few other products that are different form of microorganisms that you can apply to the soil or apply to the leaf. Um, and then getting out of that, so from applying the non-fungicidal treatments to the leaf, what you're going to get out of that is uh, you're going to prime that turf grass plant, antifungal activity, protein synthesis, which is key uh, with some of the products, chlorophyll production, um, systemic acquired resistance, uh, and lowering the pH. Essentially, most of the diseases that you'll have in terms of grey leaf, uh, fusarium are predominantly your guys' main diseases, you might have anthracnose as well. The majority of them are of a higher pH. So if you're using chemical products that are a lower pH, they will stunt the growth of that, of that fungus so, and stop that development of the fungal spores. Uh, and what you're doing when we're using the beneficial bacteria and the beneficial fungi, which we'll touch on more in depth later on, Essentially, we want to increase the lipiotide production, so that is the antibiotic production of the actual grass plant, and that's what we're initiating within the plant. And we'll move on to induce systemic resistance as well. The byproducts of using the microorganisms as well are um, carbon cycling uh, and soil fluctuation. 
Microorganisms will feed on carbon, essentially. So if you're applying those to the soil, they will increase the porosities uh, of your soil and also increase that carbon cycling within your soil. So non-fungicidal solutions. We've got biostimulants. Now this is just a brief snapshot of some key, key products within our range um, that will allow you to do different things at different times. So the biostimulants I'm going to talk about today are Super 50 Prime, Lanvita, Essential uh, and Microgrow. Plant nutrition and, and plant elicitors, elicitors are CalMag and Emission, pH reducer, TKO phosphite, um, saw activator and extra iron. We're also going to just touch on a dew dispersant that we just brought out a few, uh, last month, last, last month as well. Um, and then we're going to talk about products uh, that are beneficial in bacteria and fungi, um, such as companion and residues. Some of you guys probably already use some of these products, but it, we can. I've got some good data, some good pictures that we can, we can show you. So plant nutrition and elicitors. We touched on nutrition, um, especially during this current period, we're going into the winter period. Joe talked about calcium uh, and magnesium as well. Ignition is a mixture of calcium as well, uh, calcium nitrate. But essentially what you're wanting to do at this time is feed the plant but not feed it too much so you're going to give it, give it disease. Also you can feed too much now and you'll get leaching as well because the plant won't be able to uptake it because it's not actively growing as much. Magne magnesium plays a very important role in the metabolism of carbohydrates. Calcium, uh, is, I think Joe touched on that, is there for cell division uh, and strengthening that wall. Essentially, it will strengthen that whole plant going into the winter period. Um, and calcium and magnesium actually together, um, they will activate enzyme systems within the plant. pH reducer, in, in terms of your situation, we'll get onto the strategy of using these products later. Um, it's a citric acid based product, so it's not a sulfur product. Um, what we've got, what we're initiating a response here is reducing the pH of the actual surface. Um, but what that will do in turn is um, disrupts fungal spore membranes uh, and it will also um, create the met metal metabolic destruction um, of the Krebs cycle. So the Krebs cycle, most, well, all, all living aerobic systems um, use the Krebs cycle. Um, and that will disrupt that cycle. So if a fungus is using that cycle, you can disrupt it. It's a really good product used at a really high volume uh, in terms of say if you've got a disease and you want to really hit it hard, you can go up to about 20 to 30 litres a hectare and it will significantly stunt the growth of the, of the fungus that you're dealing with. TKO phosphate, it's still up in the air at the moment. In the UK, we, we can still use phosphates. In Europe, they're pretty much banned. They're a really good product for doing indirect or uh, direct fungal activity. In the indirect, it will initiate a plant response within the plant um, and pre-warning that plant that there, there is disease coming. It will actually improve plant health as well. There's actually some new research that's just come out in the past six months that it actually does add to uh, soil nutrition as well. And most of you guys will probably get algae in the football environment. Uh, used at a very high rate, it will start knocking algae. <clears throat> so SAR activator um, is sicilic acid. Now sicilic acid is one of the compounds that will initiate the hormone response. So if you're using sicilic acid 
to uh, if you're spraying sisilic acid on the plant sisilic acid is already found within the plant but if you're using it at an increased rate you're initiating that response within the plant uh, and that response is systemic acquired resistance you can use this preventatively um, or you can use it as a more of a contact at a little bit of a higher rate the majority of what we would say is using it uh, preventatively iron is a very versatile uh, compound um, it's essential for plant health just in general but in terms of a disease suppression you can the volumes of rate that you can use are quite excessive uh, excessive you can either use the chelate form or the ferrous form um, high rates of the ferrous form i would say aren't as well are effective but i would prefer to use a chelate uh, the plant will uptake it a lot better um, it will decrease the pH level, so you're using this product along with the citric acid as well, along with the uh, sicilic acid, um, to decrease that soil surface when you've got disease instances coming in. So the beneficial bacteria and fungi. So we have a product called Companion. We've had it for 10 years. Um, it's a microbial inoculant. Sam touched on the CFU count. Now we're not going to get into a contest that our product has this many CFUs. What the CFU coliforming units, essentially there are 12 billion microorganisms in, that, in the product that you will get. Um, the good thing about Companion is the well, all of the microorganisms are dormant. They are activated when you spray them out. But the essential thing here is that there's three really big responses that you are applying this product. You can either use this preventative way, use it as a contact. Uh, you can also use it, spray it to the leaf or to the soil. We would, we would definitely recommend to spray it to the, to, to the soil profile, so put it in with your soil dredges. The microorganisms itself works better when it's on the root leaf, uh, on the root tip, sorry, and we'll see some pictures later, later on. But the main thing that Bacillus subtilis, which is the actual microorganism itself, Bacillus subtilis is the actual genre of the, of the microorganism and then you can get different strains of Bacillus subtilis. But essentially the main thing is the lithiotide production, which is essential really. And that's, that, that's the part of the microorganism that's going to create the antifungal properties within the plant. You're also going to initiate the induced systemic resistance. So we talked about the SAR before with the, with the sicilic acid. And then you're also doing another system called the uh, uh, induced systemic resistance as well. Um, so if you're using these two in comparative situations, um, that is completely fine. But when you're using them, you're uh, initiating that response on two different fronts. And what you're also getting is plant growth promoting rhizobacterium. Like I said before, you normally put this in the soil dredge. When it's on the when it's on when it's on the root, it will cause that defense me mechanism on the root, but it will also initiate a response within the root for elongation and growth. You'll get nutrient, nutrient cycling as well. So like we talked about all microorganisms, some of them are different. The trichodermas are the real ones that will uh, initiate nutrient cycling within the plant, but you will get nutrient cycling. So if, you, if you've got any nutrient locked up in your soil, uh, if you've got any memorizable nitrogen, if you do a soil analysis, you'll have a memorizable nitrogen rate and you want to break up that mineralizable nitrogen within your soil profile, I would definitely recommend either using Companion um, or another product that we have which we'll talk about.
So that's the bacillus subtilis on, on the root hair. You can just see on here the spot of dots, how it's just initiated on the root hair. So residues, um, residues is another microorganism, uh, well, microbial product that we have. This is more initiated for the soil fluctuation and um, organic matter degradation. Um, so if you guys, that if you've got high OM, uh, you've got high levels of batch, um, Residues is a really good product. I, we, we just con uh, concluded this research. Um, this research was done on a sandy golf green up to, I can't remember the profile, about 98-98% sand, pretty much a USGS spec. Um, but they've been left over the years for high, high OM levels, which we're still doing the study there. Um, but what you can see on the left, there are three categories of microorganisms that we uh, take in our soil analysis. In the blue is before we made the residue application, and then in the green is afterwards. That's actually a 163%, 164% increase of the flagellates. Um, the flagellates are a population of the bacilluses and also the trichodermas. What we're seeing, not just in this environment, but in some other stadium environments through using sustain and residues and another product as well, that if we increase the beneficial count in terms of uh, plant parasitic nematodes, if we increase that beneficial count, we don't really want to get rid of the plant nematodes, we want to work um, in, in, in like a synergistic way with them. And we are seeing that in a few of our stadium environments where we're using the sustain, we're using another product called microgrow, we're using companion to increase the beneficials in the soil and to work in a synergistic way with the nematodes and not using products that completely take the nematodes out. Um, and in terms of playing quality, it's, it's superior, it's really good to the results we've seen. So what we also saw here is the mineralizable nitrogen. If you're in a situation where if you do, do a soil analysis, you can most soil analysis will um, do a mineralizable nitrogen test. Um, if you're significantly high, you can use residues to reduce that nitrogen. What we saw from this, it's like it, it is a 39% reduction, but that's a release of 19 units of N into your soil profile from just applying this and not applying a chemical. You're just releasing that organic matter thatch degradation within that soil profile. Essentially, you're not using any form of nutrient, you're using a microorganism to do that for you. So the biostimulants, there are numerous different biostimulants. We have 16 or 15 in our range. They are going to be heavily regulated in the next five years within Europe. It'll probably be a bit longer here. Um, but what we're seeing in the research that's been provided by <coughs> some of our uh, providers of biostimulants is they have gone that one step further in terms of uh, the research at the molecular level. These three products will do three different responses. Um, the Super 50 Prime um, is reducing that oxidative stress within the plant. So if you've got cold drought, salinity, uh, water logging uh, and heat, and you want to be using that product pre-warning the plants, similar to using the sicilic acids. Um, and you get, we are getting some really good responses at the moment with that product. Lanvita um, is a product that is increasing photosynthesis within the plant. 
essentially what BioAtlantis are doing is they've found out the bioactive components that they need to uh, out of uh, different forms of seaweed. They've extracted that, they've synthesized that compound and when they've synthesized it for mass production you're using those certain compounds to initiate a certain response within the plant. Most seaweeds in general will go, this will give you root growth, this will give you this, this will give you that. The legislation is going to be not defined like that in the next five years. The legislation will, you have to tell the end user what in it, what, what sort of response this um, biostimulant is doing within the plant. It's not the overall generalistic. And microgrowth, um, which we've got some data on, which I'll show you. Um, microgrowth is another good product. Um, you can buy it at six litres a hectare. Just click on the. So, you, uh, can everyone see that? Most guys. <coughs> on the left is untreated soil profile. On the right is a treated soil profile. Uh, and this is just after one application. Um, what you can see is the fumicutes. There was a 96% reduction, and that's the pathogen. Uh, that they are the pathogens that are going to do harm within your soil profile. From applying that, you can see the beneficial uh, input, uh, the, well, the beneficial count from that. And um, especially in the stadium environment, I'm seeing it on numerous times now where nematodes are becoming a big issue, definitely on in the stadium environment, but also on the training pitches as well. And like I said before, if you're increasing that beneficials through using sustained microbial companion residues, we're not using products that are going to harm nematodes. We want to work in in a symbiotic nature with them. Essential is another one of our products as well. Uh, essentially, it's 21 amino acids. I'm not going to sit here and name every single 21 amino acids. But it's a fantastic product to use it as a food source for the microbial. So if you use this product, you can use it with the companions uh, and, and with the residues to give it a food source for when it goes in. Yes, yeah, so due dispersants. Uh, LeafGuard came out in October this year. This is our trial site. So I, I'm managing the trial site. Um, it's up in Worcestershire. Um, we've got 50-50%, well, 50% golf, 50% uh, ryegrass to try and mimic a football environment. We're actually getting another new trial site, probably, can I probably tell? Uh, yeah, but we, we're getting another new trial site that will be with the RFU um, and it will be an area that is more related to you guys in the stadium environment so I can use products because when you guys come to me you'll go, well, you haven't used it on <coughs> stitch, pitch, vice versa. Um, so we're going to be doing some research at the RFU, which is really good so I can get data for you guys, especially in the stadium and the stitched environment. Not everyone uses leaf uh, due dispersants, especially in this side, golf do. Essentially what they're doing is removing that leaf wetness from the leaf. What we're getting at the moment on this, this is cut at five mil, three cuts we're getting about 12 days out of that. Um, starts to really drop off in like the 10, 11, 12, but there's still not much due on, on the leaf. It's a really good product. Uh, we did have one guy <laughs> mix it with our non-fungicidal products. It is classed as a non-standalone, it's a standalone product. I'm not going to sit here and stand today and mix it with anything because I'm still doing the research on what we can mix it with. But it did mix with some of our non-fungicidal products in terms of citric acid and sicilic acid and iron as well. Where most of them on the market, you can't really mix them with anything really. 
The reason we can mix this one is because it's a silicon-based product, as a, a polyurethane silicon-based product. So the products that I've just talked through is, it's up to you how you use them. Uh, we would definitely recommend to use them in more of a preventative manner before you can see that disease coming. Um, make sure you're checking your forecasting models to see disease coming. Start using these products maybe two weeks, a week beforehand, so you're pre-warning that plant. Using a mixture of foyer applications or soil applications, so using iron phosphate, sicilic acid, and super 50 prime. Biostimulant prevention mixture in terms of using the Super 50 Prime and the Lanvita. With that product, you're going to reduce the oxidative stress, but you're also going to increase the chlorophyll content of the plant. Using your soil dread, so using microgrow essential, uh, either with the residues, if you want to reduce thatch uh, and allow that chemical to eat the carbon on the, on the root zone, and then use companion. Say if you've got grey leaf spot, which is becoming a severe issue in the football. Um, you do get some efficacy with some fungicides. I'll show you some research on uh, trifoxes in a minute. But essentially, if you're using, if you, if you do have grey leaf in the football environment, you can go a bit higher and a bit harder. So go hard, hard with the pH uh, reducer and the iron. With companion, um, what I would advise is if you are using companion or any microorganisms with any copper products, I would not advise that. Basically, the copper will completely take out all microbial products. Um, anyone guys mixing copper with any microbial, just keep that in mind. Uh, they need to be in different sprays because you're just wasting money there. What I haven't put in there is just any form of nutrition. We've talked about nutrition today. If you're using different forms of nutrition, most of our pro well, all of our products are compatible with this. But this is if if the real if you've got real disease problems and you really need to hit it. There's just some uh, few examples that you could use as mixtures. Grail eSpot, anyone know if they've had it, anyone had it down this way? I would highly advise you to just keep an eye out. Um, most of the guys in and around London and on the south coast are getting hit with grey leaf at the moment. You guys in the stadium football environment can manage most diseases now, especially with fusarium. This is really hard to manage, where I've seen areas of pictures where you'll lose them within 12, 18 hours. There are a few different strains. The European one is a bit different the one that, than the one that we have. But essentially, and we get in those days now where you're getting really high temperature um, and quite, a, quite heavy leaf moisture. Um, leaf moisture is key to try and, to try and reduce. Um, what I'm just going to itinerize here is the best practices that we've seen uh, and that what, what we advise to the industry, especially in and around that London area, um, and what, I've, what we've seen in Europe as well. Um, essentially, if you think you've got it, go and get it tested straight away. Um, most of our stadium environments in London now, they will take soil analysis every month from renovation all the way through October. Um, because if they get it, they need to know that they got it and they need to hit it hard. So let's move away from quick release forms of nitrogen. You can use a little if you just want to get a little bit of plant health, but you need to move towards slow release. Any, any quick forms of nitrogen, the plant will just kick on and it'll, well, the disease will kick on even more. Um, reduce leaf wetness. Most of the guys will um, increase their air movement and I know it's really hard in the stadium environment but in the stadium environment some of the big guys now they've got the budgets to have the fans in there 
Um, fans really do help. Um, they keep them pretty much on all night essentially. And that will also help reduce the leaf wetness as well. It'll take that leaf moisture off, that might occur, that cutation that might accumulate. Water application. Um, you need to move from frequent to really deep and infrequent. So when you water, water it heavily and water it hard and let it dry out. If you're keeping that top top 25, top 50, just moist and you're just tickling it along, tickling it along, you're gonna, the, the disease is just going to go through the roof. A few of the stadium environments that we go into, they disinfect everything after they mow to the point where when players come on the pitch, they actually walk through a disinfectant. It's like a disinfectant kind of, um, it's not a bucket, but it's kind of like a disinfectant ramp they walk through. Because the, the, it is a theory, but we think some of the players, if they're just taking it pitch to pitch on their boots, if the boots haven't been uh, cleaned properly. Make sure you collect, gra collect the grass clippings, don't revert them back, because you're just gonna basically regurgitate the disease from the cut grass clippings. And essentially, most of the stuff that I get back from the guys, uh, Jamo, uh, James uh, Williams uh, at West Ham, he, you talk to him and he just goes, just, just leave your pitch and go to pub. Um, because essentially, just leave that stress. It just needs time to recover. The more and more work you do on it, if you go out and start mowing three, four times a day, um, the more and more water you're gonna apply, it's just going to increase it. So essentially, as, a, as a, an agronomic perspective, lean off everything. Your management, your nutrients, everything. Like I said, testing is some, well, the areas that we go into, uh, they're, they're taking soil analysis um, from renovation through to around October and using non-fungicidal treatments. So using your phosphates, your sicilic acid, your citric, your companion, and using biostimulants to aid recovery. And that moves us on to grass cultivar selection. Um, so grass cultivar question, we, we do sell Barrenbrook, so I'll touch on Barrenbrook. Barrenbrook do produce three, three different mixtures for us for the stadium environment, but what we'll touch on is just this middle one today. And what we'll touch on specifically are Barprium and Amiata. So they're the, the Desiree leaf spot um, tolerant, I'm not going to say resistant because they're tolerant of the disease cultivars within that profile. This is this year's mixture. I believe last time I spoke to the to David Greenshields, that is going to change this year because there's another cultivar, I think. George, you know if there's another? When we talked to him in Holland, he did say there's another one coming. Yes, there is. Yeah. Um, so essentially, I think next year you might have three tolerant cultivars in there. I'm not sure what percentages will, they'll be towards Greenleaf. So this is at Barnbrook. This is the trials that they do. Um, and I'll highlight Amiata and Barprium. Essentially, they'll, they'll grow the ryegrass up, they'll put it, they'll incubate it, and then they'll inoculate the disease. What you're still getting, you're getting about 70 to 80% reduction in that with the cultivar. That is the UK strain. This is the European strain. So the European strain is a lot harsher um, at the moment. Um, and you'll have Barprium and Amiata. So even with those cultivars, you're still getting a 50% reduction in loss. Um, I would urge any, some guys do do a bit of Barnbrug in here, but I would urge any of you guys sat here today, go to your seed companies and ask them what else they're doing for Greeley, because guys in the stadium environment, 
grass cultivar selection is going to be essential going forward. So yeah, you can just see there, uh, Barfart is the top one, uh, which is definitely not coming. Uh, you've got Amiata and then you've got Bar Libra or Bar Priam as well. And then all the rest of them, uh, Tetra Green, so you've got a Tetra Ploid in there, it's pretty much down here. I'm not going to sit here and talk about dip poison tetrapoids because the, I'm not going to bash them like Joe did. This is the grey leaf trial at Barrenbrook, um, an accumulation of different cultivars. But what you'll see is, is the Amiata and the Barcrean. The Barfart's a bit darker in, in terms of genetic colour. Normally in grass species, the darker the colour, the, the less the wear tolerance. The paler the colour, the better the wear tolerance in general. So how, how do you get grey leaf to attack that whole area? That whole area yeah. was inoculated. Yeah, it was under. So you can just see this. You can just see the side there. It's in a. Uh, it's in a polytunnel. So it's basically creating a an environment that's dry. But what they can do there is they can manage the moisture content. They've got. A, you can't see it, but above this they've got like a. It's a it's like an irrigation system on like a on like a leverage system, and it sprays the water down, and they can spray each plot can be can get a different certain amount of moisture, but they can create a certain environment, and then it, they essentially just inoculate the whole thing. So yeah, so that's the Amiata and the Barprium. A few of the football clubs that I go into, they when they got grey leaf this year, we put Amiata down as a straight. So as soon as they got the grey leaf. You're going to get desiccation straight away. So, Fulmer is one of the clubs I go into. They got grey leaf. We went straight in with the Amiata, germinated fine, and, 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 and he got coverage back. The reason why we went with the straight Amiata is, like you've just seen, it's the strongest in terms of grey leaf tolerance at the moment. That's it. Thank you very much. Hi lads, I'm, uh, I'm Dan Sparks, I'm Grounds Manager here for Bristol Sport. I just want to jump on the back of Josh's um, presentation in a minute and show you a photo of what we experienced in the summer, uh, a new disease to us, didn't um, get completely caught by surprise if I'm honest, I think we were really worried it was grey leaf spot, um, happened up only one end of our pitch, our sunniest end, gets the most sunlight, gets the most wind, um, I'll show you how it started on the previous photo, a couple of little spots. Um, and you can see on that day we were just cutting the pitch kind of as normal, kind of, wow, where's this come from? Right, let's stop. Sprayed it with a chemical within sort of two or three days. It was clear to see that, yeah, we luckily had stopped it. It sort of transferred the spots along this, this end. Didn't go outside of this, this, this sort of cut band, if you like. We sent some samples off to Kate. Got, it wasn't grey leaf spot, which is a really, really big concern of ours because I heard the struggles that the other guys had been having in, in other stadiums. Um, but yes, she, she said she thinks it was melting out, so you can kind of see on this photo, maybe not so clear at the back, it's kind of a V, and it does go all the way along where the, the contractor put the cedar down and then accelerated into its pass, and it ended up doing two different ways, either four ways, but the two obvious ones, it almost looked like that was where it started and then it, it transferred, um, so I think it was just sort of melting out, but uh, yeah, I must admit, um, it was just completely dead. There was just, we sprayed it with a chemical, but even that wasn't enough to save it. But yeah, I must admit, we had a, I'll talk about it in a second, but a brand new pitch that's three weeks old, which is why it's quite thin. And it looked like that right outside of uh, our boss's office. So it was, it was quite awkward. But uh, once we explained to him the problems, and um, yeah, I'd say June was obviously really hot, um, and that came just, just after that. So whether that potentially brought in the disease. But um, yeah, just to jump on the back of that, that, that was our 
uh, our big worry of the summer, brand new pitch, and um, yeah, had had this big two dead bits, which took quite a long time to to recover. Perfect. So yeah, a little bit about us. Um, we we are kind of split into to two teams um, effectively, but we we do consider ourselves all one big team. We're a team of 14 at Bristol Sport. Uh, we look after QEH School uh, as well. And Bristol Sport covers um, Ashton Gate Stadium here in the middle, Bristol City High Performance Centre and Bristol Bears High Performance Centre. Photo of QEH School there. Kind of our other, other part of the team um, is Clifton College. Uh, we've been involved with them for about two years. Um, they, yeah, we sort of collaborated together um, and we, we managed their grounds as well. So yeah, big old team and one of the, one of the things in, in team, yeah, there's no sort of I in team. So one of the things we're really big on is, is like staff out of work environment. Um, on this occasion, we went uh, go-karting, we've had a darts competition. It, it, at the college, we did a rugby union sweepstake. We're planning Christmas party where we're going out for a drink. So yeah, we're kind of, we're such a fast paced environment and especially here at Bristol Sport with seven days a week. Um, for example, this weekend's a prime example. We've got rugby on Saturday, women's football on Sunday, uh, and then women's rugby at the end of next weekend. So there's, there's always something kind of going on or that we're, we're heading in towards. So yeah, we're kind of, Sometimes it's good to take a step back um, and kind of let our hair down. So that's one of the things that sort of is a massive team effort um, amongst all of us here. Uh, many, many of our, the team are in, the, in this room now. So yeah, we kind of always try and take, take time out to, to sort of appreciate that. It's kind of a deep dive into Ashton Gate now, really. Um, a little bit, obviously, yeah, hopefully you all enjoy yourself and go away with uh, you know, some positive, positive things from the day. Um, and I'll just tell you a little bit about our last 12 months here um, at Ashton Gate and why we've made the decisions that we have and why things have happened like they have. So um, we've currently installed a Hero hybrid carpet system, which I've got a few samples of here. Um, so I'm going to put these on the tables and sort of pass them around and you can have a feel um, feel of what it is. We previously had a Deso Grassmaster system. Okay, this is a cis equivalent, but you'll get a grass for the depth of fibres, the separation of the fibres, how much they poke above the surface. Um, and kind of what they feel like. So I'll kind of put those on the table and you guys sort of pass them around and I'll talk about them obviously a little bit more in my presentation. The reason why uh, this summer we put a Hero hybrid carpet in was, was basically the Deso became brittle. Um, it was nine years old, it had a fair bit of use, it had a couple of concerts in various summers over those nine years, but basically you could just pluck it with like your hand and it would just snap. Um, it just became very brittle, I think just age, UV from the sun, maybe the wear, the concerts, putting the flooring down, the driving on it, the taking the flooring back up. It just kind of had its day. Um, so we really needed to look to change. And one of the things that really sort of enforced that change was Bristol City women just got promoted to the Women's Super League, the premiership of women's football. Um, they quickly, they, they, they were playing at our, our high performance centre on the match pitch. There's only 500 seats capacity. They quickly outgrew that. Um, Going back two years, they wouldn't even get 500 people come to a game. Um, and as an example, three weeks ago, we hosted Arsenal here. They had 12,000. The growth has been astronomical of women's sport. Um, and they, yeah, they outgrew the Hub Performance Centre. So they needed to find another venue. We have a venue here. So here they, here they are. Um, so we quickly became not just a dual sports, but then we were going to have women's football as well. And then not forgetting the women's rugby, they play half their season here now as well. Um, to make, you know, for equality and to make sure everyone, everyone's included. So as I say, next weekend is the first of the women's home rugby union matches, um, which, which they're going to play here. Um, but yeah, going back to the Deso, so we knew we were going to increase usage. And what we knew was the Deso just wasn't standing up to games last year. 
the damage, as I say, was, 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 was really bad. The chunks of divots were becoming really bad. It was almost like you just took that reinforcement away. And that's what we were kind of seeing after games, scrum errors, driving malls in the, on the five meter line, for example, it was just obliterated. Um, so we kind of knew had something had to be done. So we kind of had the discussions in-house um, and thankfully we had the support and they came forward and, with the funding and they said, yeah, you, you tell us what you recommend and you, and you can push ahead with it. We had the experience of using a hero carpet up at Bristol Bears High Performance Centre and we were really pleased with the increased wear that we felt it was having. Rug rugby, once we would have a red session where they really go hammer and tong and they smash it um, and we were really pleased with how the hero carpet had been standing up. So we had that in the back of our mind um, and also we knew what the stitched pitch provided um, because we had that both here at the stadium and up at the Bristol City High Performance Centre. So we, we, we knew what that was able to offer us. One of the reasons we looked to change and the reason we've selected the hero carpet um, is just to give us a little bit more flexibility around the summer. One of our biggest challenges and, and most topical conversations is what the summer looks like. Um, we obviously have a, there, there are 28,000 seats and they all kind of look one way so they really want to make the most of it. That mainly being concerts, that's the most profitable but also they want to get local schools down here to engage the youth engagement in the club. They want to uh, let it out to businesses that want to have a game of football or rugby here um, so that they really drive that so kind of the minute the last game of the, the season is every day is pretty much booked and some days we have three games of football a day just back to back to back um, and that's just just a, it's a big revenue stream for them and they want to make the most of it so um, yeah we kind of we, we knew that and, and one of the things looking forward and kind of seeing what the guys at, at Wembley and at Liverpool and at Tottenham are doing they can grow a pitch off site, they can bring it in, for example, they can have a concert and then they can go straight into the Community Shield at Wembley. And how are they doing that? And they're using a carpet system. They're using a different type of carpet system to, to what we've selected. But effectively, they grow it on, a, on site, roll it up, bring it into the stadium and lay it out. We're not jumping into that this year, um, but it was like it just kind of covering all tracks that that is a potential in the summer because every year they kind of were losing time and time for growing. Um, so one of our years, and it wasn't as successful, we had a five-week row before our first football match. The pitch wasn't really ready. You know, we did our best, but as you kind of all know, five weeks is just a little bit short of where we need to be. So we have an alternative now, and that's grow somewhere else. So, and, and the Hero Carpet has provided that opportunity. So now we can start talking about, to concert promoters about concerts in July, because it's not a problem. We'll just grow this on the turf farm, uh, and then we can bring it in. So that, that's not happening this year. But it's enabled those conversations, which we then couldn't have with the with the a stitch surface. So, kind of from, with a business cap on, it's provided that opportunity for potentially future. Moving forward, just onto the, the, the renovation this summer, it was always going to be tight. We had the Arctic Monkeys, uh, and then we were rolling straight into uh, to a game. So we know we had nine weeks. So we really had to press the the, the contractors to a three week renovation that enabled a six week growing uh, as I say we knew from past that the five weeks was just a little bit shy of where we needed to be um, so yeah we re really sort of drove that it was a manic nine weeks I must admit throwing that the disease that we had after three weeks growth yeah my heart was really going but we we, we got there in the end I said massive team effort and we were able to deliver the pitch for the first game of the season after nine weeks so um, yeah so that was a kind of a, a job well done on that front I just wanted to delve a little bit deeper into the the organic side, so that nine, nine years of a desert grass master surface, what happened over the years was the drainage rates just dropped off and we knew that and actually got to a point where we had our last ever professional game here was a rugby union game. Uh, it was in May, first week of May, first weekend, uh, and it was due to rain. We had to pro call the first kind of top, 
on a obviously with gravel carpet and with the construction you've got, you don't always expect to have to open up the surface the night before the Saturday game. You're normally looking at cutting it. That wasn't the case for us. We literally had to aerate, leave the pitch in May. <laughs> it was actually a, the rain was, was was phenomenal, and then it did dry up for the rugby game. But yeah, it was kind of a real like something that we potentially do on on our soil pitches at our school and college. Um, but not something that we may be doing in this professional environment because you know the, the pitch is a lot softer and pitch firmness is one of their big things um, for injuries. So yeah, kind of making the pitch super soft was um, was, a, was a real real concern. But you can kind of just see here all the black organic, and that's just below the surface. Um, we've renovated every year, incorporated new sand over those those um, eight renovations, but it's just not been enough. And over the time, it just as I say, it just had its day, unfortunately. Um, and, and drainage rates were were were, were included in that. Um, it just it just would have been a waterlogged pitch. Um, it had been very very wet if we if we hadn't approached on that day. So yeah, it's kind of very, we're very grateful that we're not that we're able to redevelop this summer and not have to go through another. Especially the last month, it's been a nightmare. You know, to try and try and muscle through. We'd have been procoring every day. Just to show you a bit about um, the renovation and kind of yeah, some some snapshot photos of that. So the hero carpet, as you sort of seen the samples going around, it literally comes in like a carpet, all squashed. Um, you roll it out uh, and then try and infiltrate the sand on that, which I'll show you in, in the next slide. Um, kind of just a few other little bits that we, we wanted to do. We on the on the Lansdowne side, the west side, which is which is this one, as we go out on the left hand side, we had five meter of three G, and then the touch line was right on the edge of the three G. But we wanted to change that. We wanted to give the players a little bit of runoff. Um, we kind of felt that it was awfully close um, to the touch line around the other three sides. We had grass all the way to the to the curb edge. Well, after come October, there wasn't any grass. It was just mud. It was slick. Um, there was a lot of algae on there. So we wanted to tidy up the surround a little bit, make them a lot smarter. Um, so we put 3G around all the side, but that was allowing one meter of, of grass runoff um, around the outside. So we had to extend just one meter. It's quite a lot of work for one meter, but I think we felt necessary to do it. Uh, and that included in, installing undersoil heating as well. We did well, in our coldest, shadiest area. We didn't want to leave one meter of um, sort of un, un, undersoil heating, not heated. So I'll show you the, the, the hero install. So the carpet went out, as you've seen in the last photo. They just drop sand on through a drop spreader, let it bake in the sun, brush it in, and it's a slow and steady progress just to get those fibers standing up and to get them nicely spread. And you can kind of see the result um, of it on here. So that had a little bit more to go. There should only be 20 mil poking above the surface. That's a little bit more, but that's just a photo of the journey um, on our way there. You'll notice the white back in. Uh, which has been, um, I know there's been many carpets tried and tested in the past and the back end's been really topical. The back end um, is needed there for, for install so the sand doesn't drop through. Otherwise you can imagine all the mechanical brushing, the carpet would just keep pulling up and you'd end up with all the sand you're applying underneath the carpet. So you need to keep that on top and weigh it down to enable this to happen. Um, so the back end does go. Uh, we were testing ours quite, uh, taking samples to check how quickly it went. Um, and, and between month three and four, we'd seen kind of the end of our, um, end of the backing out here. So we, we procured a couple of times to make sure there were holes for the water to get through as well. But yeah, we can kind of safely say from our experience, this backing biodegraded after, after four months, we can comfortably say it, it, it was gone. Um, and, but that's the reason the backing's on there. And I know, like I say, some tried and tested methods in the past haven't been successful. But this is the, this is the thing, I guess, in, in, in today's world. And, and this is the thing we've got out there. I didn't, I'm not here to sell you a carpet, by the way, but I wanted to give you like the comparison of what the, the differences are and kind of 
yeah, how, how that looks. So you can see the carpet is much, much shallower. Um, it's only a 60 mil carpet, and although that's you know not quite two thirds, there should be 40 mil of root zone and then 20 mil left above the surface. Whereas in your stitched alternatives that we previously had, the fibers go in 180 to 200 mil. So they're quite a lot, a much deeper construction. And as I say, sort of flip back to that concert uh, revenue stream mentality, um, there's no way you could turf this, but that's the reason you can turf that, as it's much, much shallower, um, but hopefully still gives the same reinforcement um, when it's all together. One thing we're really careful of changing surfaces is that we're not making the players change what surface they're technically playing on in terms of pitch hardness. So we do test quite religiously, and this is just our little sample of how we test uh, every match day, we want to make sure that the Clegg readings are roughly the same. We don't want them going from, yeah, from a much softer pitch to a much harder one or vice versa. So we're really conscious of, of that change. Um, the head of performance back in the day would, you know, made it clear that it was essential that that didn't happen and kind of talked through the injury possibility of it, of it happening. So yeah, we always try and make sure we're, we're Clegging the same, whether that be on the, the football training ground, the rugby training ground and here at the stadium, that our professional athletes and not chopping and changing surfaces too much. Um, and to so, say, yeah, this is just a, an example of what we do. And then with, with the professional sports, with rugby union and women's football, they're really keen on much more scientific testing. Um, so score play test, which is, which is run by Labo Sport, uh, come in their external company and you, they just go out with their, the AAA, they call this thing. Um, and it gives you many readings about um, that surface deformation and how much energy, energy restitution, how much comes back out of the surface uh, onto the player. So, um, yeah, we get much more scientific uh, detail and actually get sent to the two clubs so then they can feed back into us. Um, ultimately, I'm not sure there's a whole load we can change that apart from spiking it more. Um, but, yeah, so we, we, we in-house monitor Clegg readings and, and those are the reasons for that. Also did mention on there that the runoff is very highly monitored with the RFU with head injury assessment. They need a five meter um, IRB 22 compliant runoff. So we have got that one meter of grass, but the four meters of 3G is tested as well. Because you do quite often see they'll get bundled into touch and they kind of get thrown two or three, four meters into touch. So yeah, that, that's all, also tested by Labo Sport every year to make sure that the, the that the head, the head injury assessment isn't going to hit into that sort of red critical critical stage. Moving on, I'm just going to tell you about the, the sort of challenges we face in the stadium. One of them is the usage and definitely the increased usage. Um, as I say, sort of the most professional usages we've had in the stadium normally end up in the 60s, between sort of 62 to 68, something like that. Um, that's obviously including Carabao Cup, FA Cup, training sessions, team runs, open days anything where a professional sportsman goes out onto the pitch. We've already counted up what we've got this year and we're, we're just into the 70s. We've not been drawn in the FA Cup yet uh, and the Women's FA Cup hasn't been drawn and, and rugby haven't qualified for Europe, hopefully they do. So we're definitely looking at high 70 usages this year, um, which obviously for us is, is, is the most ever. Um, and we're just trying to, yeah, I guess negotiate our way through that and find out. So when I talked about kind of a high use stadium, we've got the double header this week, women's rugby next week. We haven't had a clear weekend for well over a month now, and we haven't got a clear weekend until February. There's a game every single weekend, um, and that's going to get worse if the men get drawn home in the FA Cup um, at the start of January. So yeah, it's kind of just an example of the, yeah the usage of the stadium and, and kind of yeah the importance of all of this kind of thing working in harmony. One of the other challenges is shade, and I appreciate I'm preaching to everyone else, but you two here, the guys at Principality are here, and I'm, I'm not sure they get an hour of sunlight a year. 
um, at least we get a little bit. But uh, yeah, that is one of our challenges. Um, we technically have one pitch out there. It isn't one pitch, it's divided in two. And this shade line moves throughout the year and obviously rotates throughout the day. We've got this sort of dog leg here, which we kind of is one pitch. We had algae out there in September, um, which was already evident in the corner that we're going to walk out in uh, a little bit later on. Um, yeah, hours of sunlight have significantly dropped. Well, obviously already, this would be quite representative probably of, of, of today, two o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. Um, and this is obviously in the morning, early on in the morning, when the sun rises, obviously in the east, over the back of the east. Um, um, so shade's one of our, our biggest challenges. And how we, how we work around that, we try and push all of our warm-ups up to that bit where it's in the sun, just so the extra usage actually gets some sunlight. And then in the shade, naturally, um, obviously it's already up against it. Adding to that, the games, um, yeah, we really do struggle. But one of our ways around that is we do have a number of lighting rigs at our disposal. We're very lucky with the support um, from, from the club in, in respect to these. We've got six, six big ones, so we cover the whole pitch once every three days. So we move them every single day. Um, and yeah, they cover, the, they cover the pitch. So there is some growth, there is some recovery. The most they recommend is that you can cover half your pitch a day. So every other day you're getting light. We don't have, we have once every three days is what we're available to us. Uh, and we have some little rigs for high, high wear areas. So we move those around as well. A lot of people commonly ask um, about LED and are you gonna get them? Are they useful? And I think one day in this future, we will do, yes. Um, but one of the things LED struggles for at the moment is heat. Um, they come with heaters on if you were to buy an LED rig um, and if you turn the heat on and the LED on um, it's actually using more electricity than, than the HPS bulbs so at the moment we're, we're kind of okay with these I guess but you know with the greener future um, as they sort of say I think inevitably we will, there will be a switch happening um, and that will, yeah, that will take place for us as well. And then kind of my final slide is just a we're always kind of looking ahead and there's already conversations about concerts this summer. Um, take that's booked in for two nights uh, and there's obviously all the potential conversations going on about what that looks like um, and there's about other, other concerts coming in as well. Um, and as I say, we kind of got our, our growing. We know we need six weeks of growing, we need one week of renovation. I need seven weeks really or we need to start that conversation with a turf farm. So we're all aware of that now, sort of, you know, everyone on the board and who's made those decisions are, are aware of that and some indicative costs um, associated with, with that potential. But as I say, yeah, now we're kind of planning in the pitch lettings, can we generate any more revenue, making sure the schools are all booked in for their open days, um, celebration of sport, we call it here, um, and say so the concert and the renovation, trying to just get all our pieces in line, um, ready for the summer, because once everything all starts moving, as you know, contractors get booked up and we unfortunately don't have the flexibility to move around. So we kind of, we need to jump early and book them in early and get them on the dates when, when unfortunately we can do the work. And then, yeah, kind of just as I say, we're always sort of looking over our shoulder, what went so well, what can we improve on, where do we maybe not absolutely nail it um, in some places. So yeah, we're always kind of quite, I think, critical of ourselves and finding areas where we can improve and maybe we're not, as I say, so good. Um, so I said, we, we, we're always kind of bouncing ideas off each other as a team um, and, and kind of picking those bits. And yeah, we don't think one minute we kind of nailed it, but yeah, I so say we're always kind of, yeah, I think that's the thing, we're always kind of critical of ourselves and kind of finding new little avenues of, of ways of working and those kind of things. So yeah, that, that, that's the end of my, my presentation. Um, if any of you guys got any questions? Yeah, Nicole. What do you mean when you can't participate in a conference? Amazing. 
Uh, no, so uh, so those who didn't hear Lee's, Lee's uh, question was what do we do with the carpet when we do have a concert? As, as you've seen, kind of people uh, turf it and some actually remove it. The reason we chose the hero carpet was because we can renovate it. Um, so you leave it in situ and take the vegetation. Yeah, we'll leave it in situ, put the flooring on, take the vegetation off, put the flooring on, and then once the concert's finished, try and stand the fibres back up. Bring a bit more sand in to make sure they're standing up, and then reseed it. So yeah, renovate, renovate in house. But uh, we're hoping the carpet will last seven years. We've had we depreciating it over seven years. We knew the deso didn't get to ten. We depreciated the deso over ten years. So yeah, we knew we had to probably be a little bit more modest. The reason I bring that a lot of safety talk about the real talk yeah, and I think that's the thing. I think Lee, so Lee, Lee just mentioned that um, other other bigger stadiums might have one or two carpets a year, and then you know they're, they're recycling them. Um, we obviously we don't quite work in the realms of those figures that they're working on in terms of uh, maybe the, the concerts they're attracting and the concerts you guys are attracting as well. Um, you know, big sellout eighty thousand for two or three nights worth worth thirty three thousand here. Um, so it's obviously a little bit shorter, but. Um, yeah, one of the things, and, and I had that conversation because I've looked at other carpets and other carpet manufacturers, and, and that one in particular, have kind of gone the way of can they be greener? Can they find a product which breaks down? Can it biodegrade? Ours isn't going to biodegrade, unfortunately, but hopefully it's got the longevity in it because of that. So, yeah, they're kind of, as I say, they're kind of two different directions at the moment, and those stadiums that are chomping through them are looking much more greener about it. Um, and so, we're, we're, we, we won't be. Um, we'll, we'll be trying to keep ours in situ, but um, as I said, there's, there's a long road ahead, many, many years ahead. Yeah, potentially, but we have got the challenge of trying to recycle it after seven years. How do we recycle it? Where does it go? We don't want it to end up in a heap around the corner. That might look very good for our green credentials. So, yeah, we need to be very careful with, with, with that. Um, yeah, thank you. So I think the next sort of um, plan, if you guys all sort of finished up here, we're going to wander down and go up pitch side and we'll have a look on the pitch, have a chat, ask a few questions, come and have a look in our ground shed if you want. Come see our machinery. Um, Thanks for listening to Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub Podcast. For more information, visit advancedgrass.com or follow us on socials using the handle at advancedgrass.